Uh, tomorrow, we will enter into the new year. Tomorrow will be January 1st of the year 2024. But today is still 2023. This is December 31st, the last day of the year. I heard a teaching uh, a few years ago that's just kind of stuck in my mind uh, regarding especially the Christmas season in our culture here uh, that said, we are really good at anticipating things. We are not so good at sustaining things. We spend months in the build up to Christmas and then it's like once the 25th is over, okay, we're moving on. But before we move on to the new year, before we get to January 1st, let's sit in December 31st for a second. Let's not leave the Christmas season just yet. Let's put a bow on Christmas, pun very much intended. This morning we find ourselves in the part of the Christmas season that nobody really likes to talk about, that in-between week. The feeling starts pretty much right as we open that last present. You probably know the feeling that I'm talking about, or you especially remember it when you were a kid. The lead up to Christmas morning has been building for months now. And here you are, time to open the presents. You run in on Christmas morning and start ripping things open. And then like 10 minutes later, everything is done. And your living room might look like this first slide of ours. Yeah. You sit back and survey this and you go, what just happened? And then if you're like me, now you think somebody's gotta clean this up. Any uh, dads out there who bring the trash bag with you to the tree on Christmas morning? Yeah, I see some hands. I knew I was gonna talk about this uh, this morning, and so I was even trying to pay attention to that on Christmas morning. It's just ingrained. Without even thinking, I realized that as my daughter was opening a present, I was pulling the wrapping paper from her to go, to, yeah, right? And then we look back and we think, okay, well now all the presents are open, we've had all the gatherings, and now it's just over. That moment really starts the feeling. Then we get to December 26th. Is December 26th the worst day of the entire year? I'm a Christmas person. I get pumped about the whole Christmas holiday. And then you get to the 26th, and it's like, well, what do we do now? All the Christmas decorations are still up, but all of the magic is gone. And we spend the Christmas season in line shopping to buy things. But on December 26th and after, it's the return line that you have to wait in. Statistics will tell us that one in three people will return a Christmas gift every year. Anybody out there who's already returned one? Oh yeah, I see some hands, right? I won't make you tell me what it was. All of a sudden, we get to the 26th, we start returning gifts, and then throughout the next few weeks, the batteries start dying. The coolest toy that my kids just had to have is now resting in a pile on the back of the closet with the rest of them. The world just has a way of taking the shine off of those things so quickly. And if we're not careful, this time of year, the same thing can happen in our faith. The same thing can happen in our relationship with Jesus. For one month out of the year, all of the secular stores around us are decorated festively. They are celebrating Christmas with us. Even the songs played over the speakers are Christmas songs, which let's be honest, are mostly just hymns about the birth of Christ. Every month out of the year, that's a pretty strict violation of corporate policy. But for December 1st through the December 25th, we can celebrate the birth of Christ together. For that month, everyone loves Jesus. Everyone loves Christmas Jesus. But then Christmas Jesus grows up. Think about those nativity scenes. 
little cute baby Jesus lying in a manger. We've got sheep and goats and donkeys and cows all around. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful scene. What's not to love? But Jesus doesn't stay in that manger. About 30 years later, Jesus will begin to teach. And once Jesus begins to teach, not everybody is so pumped about this gift. Not everybody is that excited about what he has to say. As Kyle Eidelman says, Christmas Jesus becomes crucified Jesus. One by one, starting with King Herod, people will start to reject this gift. And that will become a theme in Jesus' life. In John chapter 1, we have this incredible introduction to the divinity of Jesus. All of the worthiness of Christ and his presence with God. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. What an incredible statement. Beautiful. We're in. We love it. And in that very same passage, just a few verses later, we will read this, starting in verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. His own did not receive him. They did not accept this gift. And actually, history and the Gospels are filled with stories of others who also rejected this gift. And really, the primary objection and rejection come from Jesus' own people, his own tribe. And the reason that they reject him is because they expect him to be something that he isn't. They expect Jesus to do something that he is not going to do. At the time of Jesus' birth, tensions between Rome and Judea will really begin to escalate. Judea is operated as a Roman territory, and with that occupation comes many, many disagreements. Religious disagreements, socioeconomic disagreements, political disagreements. But the fear and distrust and anger that comes from the Jewish community is not just reserved to disagreements. The Romans bring on persecution and exile, many difficulties. And so from birth, the Jewish people have been taught about the coming Messiah. These prophecies in the Old Testament about their deliverer that will arrive. They've been dreaming about the day that he will come. They sit around and talk about what it will look like when he finally arrives. And then he does. And largely, they miss it. Because they misunderstand a few key things. They rejected Jesus because they expected the Messiah to be a king. They expected an earthly ruler. They expected a political leader. They expected to overthrow Rome. They have a problem being occupied by Rome, and their dream is that the Messiah will take care of this problem. He will come and lead us out of this situation. I would argue that that right there is a major reason why people have difficulty following the Christian faith. And I might even double down on that and say that it's one of the leading causes of Christ following people who begin to wrestle with their faith. Because we too misunderstand some of the teachings of Jesus. We too misunderstand the calling of Jesus. We expect Jesus to smooth the path for us. We expect Jesus to fix all of our problems, to soothe our, wor our worries and our issues. We may not say it out loud, but I think there's a part of us that says, when I become a Christian, things will work out for me. 
And when that doesn't happen, we might fall into the same mentality that we sometimes fall into right after Christmas. The newness wears off. Maybe this jacket didn't fit as well as I thought it did. Maybe this gadget doesn't do the thing that I exactly thought it was going to be. This gift doesn't work like I thought it would, and now I find myself in the return line because this is not the outcome that I expected. So one last time, before we leave the Christmas season, I like to visit the birth story of Jesus. Pastor Terry Fakes did a great job a few weeks ago in his love sermon on leading us through a few of those difficulties, and I like to do something similar this morning, but from a slightly different angle. So let's forget all that we know about how the story of Mary and Joseph and Jesus turns out. Let's forget that we know the end and put ourselves in their shoes or maybe someone close to them in this time and think about how this story plays out at the beginning. We read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, that Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. So how this would work is the two families would come together, they would arrange a marriage and they would agree on some terms and then a a price would be paid to the bride's family. From there, the bride and the groom-to-be would enter into a one-year period in which they would live with their respective families, and tradition said that this year was so that the bride could prove her commitment to purity. Are you seeing a problem that's going to arise here? It's during this year of quote-unquote proving her commitment to purity that the angel Gabriel will show up with an earth-shattering proclamation that she will become pregnant with the Son of God. Oh, if I'm Mary, that's not how I thought this was going to go. That's not how I thought this year was going to play out. That is an unexpected outcome. On one hand, what glorious news, right? This is an incredible, incredible thing. I mean, Gabriel calls her, you who are highly blessed, you who are favored. She's been chosen. And on the other hand, what an incredibly terrifying situation. What a crazy place to be in. What we have here is a situation in which she has become pregnant in this year of committing to purity, and in honor-shame culture, that alone is cause for great shame, and add to the fact that the father is not the man she's pledged to be married to. Enter into a society in which this is ripe for backbiting, for rumor, for judging looks and glances, for whispers as she moves about the village, for the sneers and giggles as she tries to explain to those around her whose baby this really is. Imagine Mary's in your Sunday school class, and now she's pregnant while engaged, and we go, oh, I know how this story goes. And she goes, oh, no, 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 it's not Joseph's. Okay, that's a plot twist. Now I think I know how this story went. And she says, oh, no, no, we didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. This is God's baby. Sure, Mary. <laughs> okay, great. And we haven't even thought about telling Joseph yet. How is Joseph going to react to this? My translation calls Joseph, quote, faithful to the law. Other translations call him a righteous man. Joseph is a really good guy. And here he is pledged to be married to a girl who returns to town, obviously pregnant, and he knows for a fact that it is not his. Plot twist. Not how Joseph saw the story going. Unexpected outcome. The law actually required him to divorce her for her unfaithfulness. To marry her would essentially be an admission of guilt. 
it would be saying, we did this before we were supposed to. Finally, in the midst of all this doubt and question, an angel also arrives to Joseph and says, you can trust her, it's okay. What she's saying is true, and he does. We've gotten through this hurdle. That's a pretty giant hurdle, let's be honest. And now we have a call for a census. So Joseph and Mary have to load up a very pregnant woman and ride, as again, as Pastor Terry Fakes laid out for us, minimally 80 miles, but most likely a lot longer, a multi-day trek with a very pregnant wife on the back of a donkey. Have you ever seen anybody ride a donkey? It is not glamorous. Donkeys don't have great suspension. This is not a fun journey, right? Another hurdle, another unexpected outcome. And now we're gonna get all the way there after this multi-day journey, and Mary is gonna start to have this baby. Okay, great, we'll just go to the inn and we'll have a nice, comfortable place. And they get to the inn, and the innkeeper says, sorry, we're all full. That's not how we would have written that story. God couldn't have called ahead. We couldn't have booked a reservation for the Son of God in the inn. But it's okay, the innkeeper says, we have a barn. Oh, thank you, that helps. Let's go have a baby with cows and donkeys and sheep. That's not how I would have seen this story going. Another unexpected outcome. Now Jesus is born, and the first visitors to see the Son of God are not foreign dignitaries. They're not priests or government officials. They're guys who have been sleeping in the field taking care of sheep, and they smell like it. And you're Mary, and you're going, this is the Son of God, and these are the first people to come here today. These are the first people that come to visit the Son of God. This is not how I thought this was going. Then King Herod finds out about this baby and decides to try and kill it. Another plot twist. So Mary and Joseph have to flee to Egypt. Finally, Herod dies, and Mary and Joseph can breathe easy. They can take little Jesus home, and everything will be great, right? Wrong. Matthew chapter 2, verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. Great news. We can go home. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So the coast was clear for all of about a week, and now we are on the run for our lives a second time. Can we return this gift yet? This isn't exactly what I thought being called by God and being highly favored would look like. And let's be honest, if we are Mary and Joseph, wouldn't we at this point look at God and say, come on, I thought you were with us. I thought we were chosen. I thought this was a big deal. You couldn't make this just a little bit easier on us. We have been doing everything that you have asked of us again and again, and we just cannot get ahead. Have you been there? Have you felt that? Have you asked God that question? God, I thought this would be easier. God, I thought you were with me on this. Why then is this so difficult? When I was seven years old, I decided I wanted to be an architect. I didn't think of another profession for the rest of my life. Every time somebody asked me, what do you wanna be when you grow up? Architect. When I was in middle school, I picked the school that I was going to go to to pursue that dream. I only applied to that one school, and when I got in, that's where I went, 
And that's what I went to do. After my freshman year, I ran into a mentor, a friend of mine from my home congregation, uh, who asked me to come be his youth ministry internship for a summer. I thought, well, that's a good idea. I can go make a little money and hang out with kids at church camp and tell people about Jesus. I love that. That sounds great. And I fell in love with it. And I remember going back to my dorm room, going back to architecture school and thinking, I don't know that this is what I want to do anymore. But I was paralyzed. This is the only dream that I'd ever thought I wanted to do. I had many sleepless nights, many tearful nights trying to make this decision. And finally, I decided to change my path to follow this newfound love of ministry. And I didn't do it out loud, but I think there's a part of me inside that looked at God and winked. As if, God, I heard it. I heard you call me to this. And we're gonna do this together. I'm in. Let's make it happen. And the next few years went really great. I changed majors, got my degree, uh, started working as an intern, uh, kind of a full-time intern at another church, started graduate school, and then started applying for full-time jobs. And again and again, I got the same call because I was young and I was single and churches were not rushing to hire the young single guy to hang out with their high school girls, right? So I got a lot of first interviews. I got a lot of second interviews. And then I got the call that said, hey, we really like you, but it's not going to happen here. So I went to work as a thrift store cashier and I moved back home, a place I had never thought I wanted to be again. And to make matters worse, my parents had transformed my old bedroom into kind of a den so I moved back home into my little brother's bedroom. So I'm a college graduate. I'm applying for jobs. I'm going to grad school in my brother's room. And I remember one night in particular, I had my knees on the floor and I had my flashcards for Greek spread out on the bedspread. And I had just gotten one of those calls again. And I remember my fist kind of hitting the bed. And I remember looking to God with this question. I, th I thought you called me to do this. I thought I was doing what you asked me to do. I thought you were with me on this. Why is this so hard? Maybe you've never felt that call into ministry, but maybe you thought you would be married by now and you're not. Maybe you thought your marriage would last forever and it didn't. Maybe you thought you would have kids by now and you don't and it's painful. Maybe you thought your career would have advanced farther by now and you feel stuck because it hasn't. You had an idea about how your life would go and you're staring at one of those unexpected outcomes. But here's the catch. The birth of Jesus isn't the end of the story of Emmanuel. It isn't the end of the story of God with us. It's the beginning. Jesus' ministry will finally begin and everyone recognizes who he is, right? Matthew chapter 13, verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he withdrew from that place and coming to his hometown, he taught the people in their synagogue and they were astonished. Where did this man get such wisdom and miraculous powers? They asked, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us as well? Where then did this man get all these things and they took offense at him? Jesus teaches in Luke chapter four, and they so much don't like his message that they plan to take him to the edge of town and throw him off a cliff. I've preached some bad sermons, but no one's threatened to throw me off a cliff yet. Isaiah 53, we have this incredible prophecy about the Messiah, that he was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. This is Emmanuel, 
This is God with us. One who has experienced the pain of life and knows it. But this story of Jesus isn't a pain, a story of pain. It's a story of hope. Why? Because we know how the story ends. What makes us be able to look back on this situation? Pretty unfortunate story of the birth of Jesus, if you think about all the hurdles. What makes us look back on it so fondly? We know how it ends. What makes us be able to teach our children about the crucifixion of Jesus? Because we know how it ends. What makes us be able to wear crosses on our bodies and decorate our homes with them? Because we know that the cross is not the end. We can read those texts and talk about those things because we've also read John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And we've read Romans 6, 9, and 10. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. We know that the cross was not the end of that story. We know that death has been defeated. Jesus came bursting victoriously out of that tomb. And to add to Kyle Eidelman's great quote and make our own version this morning, Christmas Jesus became crucified Jesus and crucified Jesus became resurrected Jesus. And now we have been invited into that life. We have been invited to take up our crosses and follow him through that hardship, through that pain, through those unexpected outcomes when the story doesn't go like we thought it would and with him to stand in that resurrected life. No matter who you are or where you are, maybe there's a part of you where you feel frustrated, maybe alone and maybe disappointed. You thought that things might go differently. You thought that if everything, you did what you were supposed to, that everything would just line up and it hasn't. This is the week after Christmas feeling. All the presents are open. All the pageantry is over. The boxes and the paper are just filling up your trash can. And now there's all these lights outside that we have to spend hours taking down. But the story is not over. The story of Emmanuel didn't end with the birth of Christ. It began there. When we were kids, we always wanted video games. My parents routinely said no. All you'll ever do, they said, is sit around and play video games. So no, you're not having them. We begged and begged and begged. Finally, I think it was my junior year of high school. We got to Christmas morning, opened up all the presents, and there underneath the tree were three little DVD-sized boxes. We each passed them around and opened them up, and in mine was a PlayStation 2 video game. I think it was NBA 2K or NBA Street. I was so confused. And to be honest, at 17, you think you know everything. And my first thought was, my parents are so dumb. They don't get technology. They don't understand that I can't play this because we don't have a PlayStation 2. So my dad looks at us and he says, uh, what happened? Don't you like it? Yeah, but I can't play it. And he does this thing where he says, well, maybe there's one more present somewhere. Brings out the PlayStation 2 and we go nuts. Like we just won the Super Bowl. We don't always understand God's gifts at the beginning but we don't have the luxury of knowing the full story. And I'm willing to bet that there are times in your life where you looked back and wondered where God was, but now you can look back and say, it turned out better than I thought. And so what I'd like to do for just a couple of seconds this morning, we're gonna pause, pull out your phone, grab your little handout in front of you, and think for just a minute, maybe write a couple down, of those moments where God, you didn't know that God was there in the moment, but years later, you realize it. So take just a moment 
and think back through me with those and we'll end together in just a second. Matthew chapter one, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the story of Emmanuel, the story of God with us. And God is with us in more ways than we will ever know or understand. And so may we enter the year 2024 with that truth close to our chest. God is with you and God is for you, even if you don't understand how. I'm gonna invite our prayer teams to the front and close us in prayer. Thank you so much for being here today. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for you. We are grateful for your presence in our lives. We are so thankful that you are with us. God, even when we can't see it, even when we don't understand it, may we look back at our own lives and see how things have played out differently than we thought, but maybe even better than we thought. God, may we look at the life of Jesus and find hope. May we find peace and may we find comfort that God, through those hardships and through those pains, that you are God with us. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.